You know, we enjoy blended worship here where we use contemporary hymns and traditional hymns together. And we've always been careful to respect our heritage in sacred music. That's why it's a blended service. We don't want to jettison um, the heritage that we have in Christian music. We like to sing a, a mighty fortress that was written in 1527. Or Amazing Grace, we like that one, that's 1779. Be Thou My Vision, do you guys remember that? That was written in 700 AD. And then Of the Father's Love Begotten, 405. Well, I've been going through Christmas carols uh, for this Advent and just talking about Uh, the beautiful carols that we have as a heritage. And the one that I'm going to talk about today is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Do we have that? That, Is it up there? There it is. Okay. Now, these are different words from the words that uh, we we sang this morning. There's been a lot of different translations and so forth. Um, At least the titles for each of the verses I took from the Latin and, and the hymn was originally done in about 1000 A.D. It goes back over 1,200 years or more. And it was often sung seven days before Christmas Eve by monks in monasteries, medieval Roman church, okay? And they would sing the O Antiphones, the O Antiphones, anticipation of Christmas Eve, when the eighth antiphone would be sung, O Virgo Virginum, Virginum, Virgin of Virgins. Okay, I told you it was a Roman church, right? And they would sing that after they sang the Magnificat, uh, Mary's Prayer. And the carol is comprised of seven stanzas. We usually sing four or five in our modern versions. It was originally comprised of seven stanzas following the original Latin model sung during the seven days before Christmas. And in spite of having roots in medieval Roman liturgy, the carol is an anthem which greets the coming Savior with one of the many titles that were given him in Scripture. And you can see those. I have them highlighted. I don't have them highlighted, but they're in the first line of each one. That's okay. Oh, they're highlighted in the, uh, in the bulletin. And you have the same ones that it's commensurate with it. So you see that these antiphones, these O antiphones, and you're going, okay, what's an antiphone? Well, I had to look that up. An antiphone is a short statement. Okay, in this case, it's the title of Christ many different titles, seven of them. And it's sung at the beginning of a psalm or especially before the Magnificat at Vespers, which is an evening prayer that was done. I know that at Bethel uh, University, they have Vespers on Sunday night for the students coming back after their weekend at home and so forth. They kind of get them in the groove again and have Vespers. It's a a Sunday evening, uh, evening prayer service. And this was often done during the Advent season, as I mentioned. Now remember, this carol dates to the medieval church of the 8th or 9th century. 
So think of an antiphone as an anthem. It's an anthem. This is, this is heralding. This is calling out the names of Christ. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Each of the stanzas begins with an antiphone that greets the Savior with one of the many titles ascribed to him in the scripture. And you see that in your bulletin insert. The first one is Emmanuel. Emmanuel. O Emmanuel. It's the same as Emmanuel with an I, which means God with us, right? But if you read the text, it says, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. And you have to understand that there's a nuance in that term God with us that is that of a deliverer. He was going to come and deliver them. Isaiah 7.14 is um, quoted here. And Israel was still in captivity when this was written. And it's anticipating they're awaiting Emmanuel to come and free them from their captivity. And that's what the first verse is talking about. O come, O come, Emmanuel. The second verse, O come thou rod of Jesse, or Radex Jesse, Radex Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Isaiah 11.1. So springing from a dead stump, Messiah will free his people by his death and his resurrection. And he'll free them from Satan's tyranny and make them free forever. Now, you'll notice that even in our, our reading this morning for the Advent reading, we often conflate the first and the second Advent. And Scripture does that too, so no harm, no foul. But if you understand Scripture, you'll be able to determine, oh, that's talking about the Millennial Kingdom. Oh, that's talking about the first Advent when Jesus was born as a man. And uh, today we'll see that, how how they kind of overlap sometimes. It's quite interesting. So the third one, O come thou day spring. And in the Latin it's O oriens. O oriens. The Latin has its written meaning both of oriens, meaning dawn or day spring or morning star. But the word can also uh, come from oriens. It means orient as in the east, okay, where you'd see the day star spring. But also, orient means Asia. And it also is derivative of orientation. And it all points, and I think um, Zechariah said this in Luke 1, 78, the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine on those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. I mean, there's so, so much wealth and depth. Why would we jettison these carols for contemporary ditties that repeat themselves over and over and over again? We don't do that kind of contemporary music. Uh, the contemporary music that Tracy and the worship team chooses for us is every bit as rich and as deep in meaning theologically. And there is some good contemporary hymnody that is out there. Because of the tender mercy of our God, 
with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine on those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And so that's taken from Luke 1.78. O day spring from on high. And then the fourth one, O come, thou key of David, O clavis David, O clavis David, then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut, and when he shuts, no one will open, and I will drive him like a peg in a firm place, or like a stake, and he will become a throne of glory for his father's house. Jesus said this of himself in Revelation 3.7. He said this, He who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he opens and none shuts, and he shuts and none opens. The key of David's referring to Jesus, as all of these titles do, or these antiphones. In Revelation 1.18, he's pictured as holding the keys of death and hell. But the one that we quoted in verse, um, verse 7 is showing him to hold the keys of salvation and blessing. And the fifth antiphone, O come, O come, thou Lord of might. O Adonai. God's people considered the name Yahweh too sacred to say aloud, and therefore they used the name Adonai in prayer often. And this title refers to Christ as a supreme ruler and the Lord over all. Look at the verse in uh, the handout that is in your bulletin. One, two, three, four, five. O come, O come, thou Lord of might who to thy tribes on Sinai's height in ancient times didst give the law in cloud and majesty and awe. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. Now the last two stanzas, stanzas six and seven, were added later on, and they were taken from the Latin, but um, in the songs that we have in our hymnals, if you can find them with all seven, you'll notice that the last two were written later. O come, thou wisdom, O sapatia. This is a recognition that the only true wisdom that we could ever have is from Christ. And Paul talked about this in 1 Corinthians 1.30, where he explains that Christ became to us wisdom from God and sanctification. He is wisdom from God. Lean not to your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him. So he is our wisdom. And finally, O come, desire of the nations. The Latin literally means the king of the nations, and they're calling Christ the king of the nations, a reference to his redeeming those from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And the last verse reads in the, uh, in the carol like this, O come, desire of the nations, bind all peoples in one heart and mind, Bid envy, strife, and quarrels cease. Fill the whole world with heaven's peace. With heaven's peace. Think of the Ukraine right now. This Christmas carol extols seven titles of Christ, and it ends on a note understood by everyone who has ever lived on this earth whether it's interpersonal relationship breakups, hard times, divorces, children that abandon the family, 
loved ones that leave all too early. We all need peace and crave it. We could all sing with sincerity, O come, desire of the nations. Even those who are not religious can understand this heart's longing for peace. Again, the Ukraine. Many unsaved people there, but I'll tell you, the Christians are witnessing up a storm in Ukraine right now. And the hymnist captured that sentiment with his final words, bring the peace from heaven. You see, it's an alien peace, just like we talk about alien uh, righteousness, right? Um, I think it was Luther that coined that phrase, alien righteousness, because it's from without, it's not from within us, it's not what we do that makes us righteous, it's his righteousness has put to our account. Well, well, this peace is from heaven. There is no peace on this earth. There hasn't been since the fall. Genesis chapter 3. There's another title of Christ, not mentioned in the carol, but which is clearly implied, the Prince of Peace. Maybe we should write an eighth stanza and title it, O Come, O Come, Thou Prince of Peace. So turn to the section that I read in Isaiah chapter 9. And I'll be referring to that. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. It's very, very interesting. Remember that Isaiah was written 100 years before the Babylonian exile. 100 years before King Nebuchadnezzar came and took them all captive and decimated the city of Jerusalem, Isaiah was writing. His ministry was in the southern part of the then divided kingdom. You remember there was Israel, which was the northern part, and then the southern part was called Judah, and the southern part was where uh, Jerusalem was and, and the temple was. And his ministry was in the southern part in Judah, where Jerusalem and the temple were located. And at that time of Isaiah, the people thought everything was just fine, even though their sisters were about to be carried away uh, by the Assyrians, the northern tribe. And the people felt good about themselves and their situation, but Isaiah, through God, saw things very differently. He was a prophet. And while the false prophets were saying, peace, peace, the people were actually facing a terrible future if they did not change. Look at Jeremiah real quick. Keep your finger at uh, Isaiah 9. And turn over to Jeremiah chapter 6. And we'll hear what these, these prophets were saying to the people that Jeremiah was talking to. In verse uh, 14 they said, And they have healed the brokenness of my people superficially, God's calling the false prophets superficial healers, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Because, verse 13, from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for gain. And from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. Kind of reminds me of today. Kind of reminds me of today. Peace, peace, and there is no peace. You know, it's, it's amazing, actually. They felt so good about themselves. It's, um, I remember there was an article. Back when I was in Indonesia, I read an article in Time magazine, uh, feeling good about doing bad or doing poorly. 
and it was talking about the low test results of American kids in math and science, and how when they interviewed the students, they thought they were great. They're greatest there's ever seen, smartest people on earth. And they were testing very, very badly. Well, the false prophets were saying, peace, peace. The people were actually facing a terrible future if they did not change. Hence, Isaiah warned God's people to repent. And Isaiah brought the message that the people needed to worship God in truth and not just go through the motions or terrible things would befall them. Now, I want to give you just a little bit of background so you understand this peace, peace, when there was no peace. And my focus is on the Prince of Peace, who is to come. But before we can grasp that wonderful text of Isaiah 9, we need to understand the context in which it was written. For a quick look into that, we need Jeremiah. He wrote right before the captivity. So you got Isaiah writing 100 years before the captivity, then Jeremiah writing right before the captivity and a little bit into the captivity, and then Ezekiel writes right inside the captivity. So you got the three major prophets, and that's how they, they play out. He wrote right before the captivity, Jeremiah did, and he came after Isaiah's time and during the last days of Judah's history. And during the reign of the last five kings of Judah, remember that's the southern kingdom, Jeremiah saw the potential for exile and Babylonian captivity as imminent. He knew it was going to happen. And so he wrote about it, and he's called the weeping prophet. Everything that Isaiah prophesied was coming to fruition during Jeremiah's time. And he saw it. He knew of Isaiah's writings. Jeremiah 6, pertinent background information, says basically, they're all corrupt, and yet they say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. The background is that Jeremiah was proclaiming that judgment was coming upon Jerusalem. However, Jeremiah was opposed by the king and the priests who did not want to hear his message. I mean, who wants to hear? You're going to go into captivity. Prepare yourself. The false prophets healed the hurt of the people superficially, telling them everything was good. They're soothsaying. And the reason they did so was because they were denying the judgment was going to come and Babylon was going to take them. It was going to happen. Just like Assyria did to the northern kingdoms a hundred years before. It was too much for the prophets to swallow and so they lied to the people. Not unlike today. Today everywhere we look we see confusion and pain and dislocation and disintegration and distrust don't we? The worldwide pandemic has left things in a state of chaos politically, socially, emotionally, spiritually, and individually. And it's difficult for us to believe the news because so much of it has proven false. I had a young man ask me, Pastor, where do you get your information? I have a hard time trusting anything. And I said, I get it from multiple sources and reading between the lines. And I told them some of those sources. Besides the news, I mean, really, I've been driving in my car lately and I, I keep everything off. It's just kind of like quiet time. And it's really refreshing, actually. Because the news is just constantly bad. Just adds to our stress in our lives. I think you need to keep up on what's happening. But you'll notice if you do a news fast, when you turn it back on after a week or two weeks, 
same news. Same news, different name, different location, same stuff. Bad, 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 bad. Well, you know something? It wasn't always like this. And it's not always going to be like this. There was a time when everything worked out, a time when everything was in place, a time when all things were not fractured and dislocated before sin entered the world. There was a paradise. And the most prominent characteristic in that paradise of God was shalom. Peace. In the Old Testament, shalom is a word for peace. In the New Testament, it's irene. And the Hebrew word Salem is a root from which we get shalom. So you have Jerusalem. Okay? It's a compound word meaning Yeru, foundation, and Salem, peace. So Jerusalem is the city or the foundation of peace. <laughs> Not right now, but that's what its name means. And as the Old Testament reveals, Jerusalem was the city of David. And after David assured that the temple would be erected there, Jerusalem became the religious center of the kingdom. And the temple, housing the ark within it, then became known as a holy city because therein was the presence of Yahweh. There is peace. There is shalom. Now, its significance, shalom, is not limited to a political domain, to the absence of war and enmity, although we think of peace like that, or even to the social structure, or to the absence of quarrels and, and of strife. It ranges over several spheres and can refer to different contexts, to bounteous physical conditions, to moral value, to ultimately the cosmic principle and divine attribute of well-being. Shalom. It, it's so rich. It's a deep, deep, deep word. In the Bible, the word shalom is most commonly used to refer to a, a state of affairs, one of well-being, tranquility, prosperity, security, circumstances unblemished by any sort of defect. Who doesn't want shalom? Shalom is a blessing. And the Jews greeted one another with shalom, shalom. It's a manifestation of divine grace. And there are there are nuances to the word. It's, it's like a, a diamond with many facets. And here's a few of them. One of the nuances of shalom is to be healthy or sound. In Genesis 29.6, Jacob asked after the health of Laban, is he in peace? Is he in shalom? And in Psalm 38.3, we read, there is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation, there is no shalom in my bones because of my sin. No sense of well-being there because of his sin. Or again, when Moses commanded the people to build an altar to God, listen to this nuance of being healthy or sound. He says that the altar of God, it had to be shalom, which in that context meant that the altar made of stone would be made of stone with every stone in its place. And get the meaning. It, it's much more than just a peaceful feeling or be happy, right? A second nuance is that it is fullness or completeness. It's multifaceted word found in Job 5.24 where Job 
says his tents or habitations will be in a state of shalom because when he examines his flock, he'll discover that all are present and not one is missing. Shalom. How many of us have family members that are missing in action, right? They're deep grief. We pray for them. We want to be complete. We want to be whole again. We want to have shalom. And many of us don't. Therefore, shalom brings with it a sense of being complete where everyone is present and accounted for and none are missing. Can you think of heaven? We're going home to heaven. And who's going to greet us there? Our family members will greet us there. Those that know Christ, those that have passed on before. Well, third meaning of Shalom or nuance is security or, or tranquility and possibly closer to our English meaning given shalom as being peaceful. And Job 21 again, verse 9, in his agony, he questions how the homes of the wicked can be shalom. How can they be safe from fear? And he's asking those questions. Remember, he lost his children, right? And had a doozy of a wife. In a very familiar text of Isaiah 53, we read, The chastening for our shalom fell on him. The chastening for our peace fell on him. Therefore, when we consider the idea of peace and and the intricate, nuanced understanding of the term shalom, which we typically associate with our English word peace, we discover that it's deeper than we've ever imagined. Shalom covers all aspects of well-being, whether within the area of countries at war, social structures, cultural attitudes, emotional experiences, physical, spiritual state of well-being, all enjoyed by the individual. That's what shalom is. That's what the peace of the Bible is. The prophet Isaiah clearly explained how a person might obtain true shalom of the Bible in Isaiah 26, 3 through 4, he says, You will keep him in perfect shalom, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. I remember when I humbled myself before the Lord, simple prayer, if you're real. I want to be one of your children. And I experienced shalom for the very first time in my life. I folded my hands and I just smiled and I went to sleep. And I woke up the next morning and I was still smiling and I still had that shalom. It wasn't until a couple of years after that, actually, I was in Bible school and I didn't sense that presence with me of God, that, that peace that I was experiencing. And I was so frightened. I was a young believer. I didn't know anything. So I went to one of the Bible school teachers and I shared with him what happened. He said, oh, God's teaching you. I said, teaching me what? <laughs> he said, he's teaching you faith, how to have faith. Now you have to trust even though you don't feel it, Stephen. <laughs> Shalom. Well, that Old Testament sense of shalom used to describe the elusive and just out of reach sense of well-being. Every heart longs for deep, deep, deep longing 
for that kind of shalom. Jeremiah warned them and told them of impending judgment to come, but in Jeremiah 6.16, we see their response. If you're still in Jeremiah, you look at 14.15, and then in 16, drop down, it says, Thus says the Lord, stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it. So God, through Jeremiah, is telling the people, go back to what you know is true, is right, the good way, the old ways, the old paths, the ancient ways. And you'll find rest for your souls. But, contrastive, they said, we will not walk in it. And there was no shalom. And Nebuchadnezzar came, took the people away to another country. Had to, they didn't speak Hebrew. And they were in captivity for 70 years because they said, we will not. You want free will? There's your free will. We will not. But glory of glory, there is the promise of future peace. There is a promise of future peace. Listen to these words from 2 Chronicles 36, 15 through 21. I want to read it to you. You can just listen. Yahweh, the God of their father, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, Jerusalem. But they continually mocked the messengers of God despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people and until there was no remedy. And therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who slew their young men with a sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or infirm. He gave them all into his hand, Nebuchadnezzar. And all the articles of the house of God, great and small, and treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his officers, he brought them all to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all the fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all its valuable articles. And those who had escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon. And they were servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. You see, Jeremiah tried to warn them, but they would not listen. And in the end, they were taken away to Babylon for an entire generation, 70 years. And the false prophets who promised peace, peace, were then discovered to be the liars that they were. You know, America is a great nation. I'm a patriot. I love America. Don't think it can't fall. I don't find it in the Bible anywhere. Not even in between the lines, and I've looked. In 1787, Ed Gibbons wrote the book, famous now, The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire, and he listed five steps in the fall of the Roman Empire. The first one was an increase in divorce and remarriage. The second one was higher and higher taxes. The third was an incredible, insatiable craze for pleasure. The fourth one was the building of gigantic.
gigantic weapons for warfare. And the fifth was a time marked by the decay of religion. History does repeat itself, folks. And the culmination of such flagrant disregard for the truth of God's word means utter ruin. God said of Israel, there was no remedy. When there was no remedy, he sent Babylon in to take them into captivity. But there was hope in captivity. Now this is what staggers the mind. And the fact that we have this book and we can see it all played out. And I'm very familiar with this book going from Genesis all the way to the New Testament times. And it's like, it's just a constant repetition of God warning, men saying we will not, God punishing, and then men repenting, and God taking them back. And then God warning, and men saying we will not, and God punishing, and men repenting. It just, it just goes over and over and over again. And it's just so amazing that during this incredible humiliation of the 70-year captivity, God gave his people Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, who all made promises of a coming day of restoration, that while they were in the Babylonian captivity, they would have hope. Talk about sitting in darkness. Even as they lay in the bondage to the Babylonians, the prophet Isaiah proclaimed an everlasting era of shalom that would come to them. And that's the context of Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. That's what it's written about. Now you can turn back there. Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali were in the northeast area of Galilee. So they were the very first ones that the Assyrians took away when they came in. And that's the gloom. But there will be no more gloom, Isaiah prophesied, for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. That's talking about when the Assyrians came in and ravaged them and took them into captivity 100 years before the southern kingdom, right? But Yahweh, through Isaiah, prophesies and promises them the better days. And this would go forth from Judah as well. The same is true for Judah, though she would go into Babylonian captivity. It's here that Isaiah's language soars into heaven as he, he prophesies that they would be in Galilee of Gentiles, the very midst of the people walking in darkness. A great light would be seen. Verses 3 through 5 tell us of a complete routing of the enemy and, and how the nation would be filled with joy and rejoicing because in verse 6, a child would be born and a son would be given and the government would be on his shoulders. Not the Babylonians. And he'll be called Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. Ruler of Shalom. And verse 7 goes on to explain that his reign, this Prince of Peace, will reign over a kingdom that lasts forever. And peace will reign over the earth and the peoples on it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. 
It was promised back then. And Isaiah is just repeating that same promise. Now isn't it interesting in this one prophecy, both the first and the second advents of Jesus, the Messiah, are predicted. The fulfillment of the glory shown on Galilee came during Messiah's first advent, when Jesus Christ was born. Matthew 4, 12 through 16 say as much. But the culmination, the fulfillment, will be realized as Christ's second coming when he brings everlasting shalom and sits upon the throne of David in the city of Jerusalem and reigns over the millennial kingdom. Both of them are in this one prophecy. Close to the meaning of the Hebrew word shalom is the word used by the Indians of Guatemala. And I love languages. Languages are very interesting. They have a word that defines peace as quiet goodness. Quiet goodness. And the term that they use conveys the idea of something that is active and, and progressive. It's not just rest in one's own heart. Because that's the way we think of peace, right? Leave me alone. I need some peace and quiet. <laughs> you know, I just, just want peace. We're talking very self-centered there. But that's kind of the way we think of peace. But in this quiet goodness, there's an active and a, a, a progression. It's not just rest and, and peace from troublesome circumstances. And the biblical concept of peace doesn't focus on the absence of trouble alone. Biblical peace is unrelated to circumstances. Can you have peace in the midst of a terrible, terrible circumstance? Yes. The answer is 100% yes. And I know that by experience and also by God's word. We have the peace of God that passes understanding, right? It's a goodness of life that is not touched by what happens on the outside. You may be in that midst of great trials right now and still have biblical peace. Maybe you have a sickness. Maybe you're suffering what? And yet you have this strange peace. Have you ever had peace like that? And you go, why am I so laid back? Why am I experiencing this? I should be absolutely insane. Well, that's the peace of God. That's the peace of God. Psalm 85, 8 through 13, give a beautiful picture of the shalom of God. And I'm not going to read it for time's sake. But especially in verse 10, it says it so well. Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and shalom have kissed each other. Where did they do that? At the cross. At the cross, where he became both the justifier and just. At the cross, righteousness and peace have kissed each other. So there is that promise of peace, folks. Now I want to talk at the end here, how do we enjoy that peace? What, how do we gain it? How do we enjoy it? Now it's possible to realize God's promise. It's not just a fool's dream. Let Christmas come early this year and receive the gift of the peace with God. You can have peace with God. So you might enjoy the peace of God. You cannot have one without the other. There are two distinctions when it comes to peace in the New Testament. There's the peace with God and the peace of God. Prepositions matter. They really matter. 
peace with God through Jesus Christ? This is a great question burning in the heart of Luther. How can I know righteousness, the righteousness of God? How can I have peace with God? And he is tormented by his sin, of which he confessed for hours on end and did penance for, and yet found himself sinning more and more. Peace, peace, and there was no peace for Luther. The Apostle Paul wrote the entire book of Romans in answer to such a question. But one verse is hugely helpful, and it has this to say, Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. You need to be justified by faith to have peace with God. And it is through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's summed up right there. It's the whole gospel right there. Now here's that elusive and desperately sought after and longed for shalom of God. It is the irene with God. And it is a peace with God that includes every nuance contained within the concept of the Old Testament, shalom. But something everyone will be able to grasp is the fact that all people everywhere are caught up in sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In fact, because of original sin, we're all born in sin. And therefore, all people are in a state of enmity with God. We're enemies of God. Paul described just such a condition later in the book of Romans, saying the mind set on the flesh, those who haven't believed in God yet, is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, it's still saying, we will not walk in those ways. We will not be moral people. Oh my gosh, did you hear Hillary Clinton? It's just so patently obvious. Am I just getting older? Is it more and more clear? The lines are really drawn clearly, it seems to me. It's just amazing, the godlessness and the absolute Lack of fear of God. Well, those who do not believe in God are hostile to God. And they can't even subject themselves to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. You're not even able to do so when you have a mind that is against God. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's impossible. But God. There's that contrastive again. But He is able to restore shalom. He is able to bring Irene to the heart, to the fractured relationship between us and our Creator. In fact, consider this thought as I read Ephesians 2, 14 and 15 to you. For He Himself, Jesus, is our peace. It's so simple, but it's not easy. Jesus is the one who made both groups, Jew and Gentile, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity. Or possibly Romans 5.10. For while we were enemies, while we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Reconciliation, bringing together. Never mind that cricket. Bringing together. Peace with God. 
Irene with God. Shalom. Once again. Now, once you have peace with God, you can finally experience the peace of God. You understand that? It's a more subjective side to this peace, just as the Old Testament shalom covered the idea of security, tranquility, and an overall sense of well-being and safety. So the New Testament idea of irene is blessed experience of believers. And this is referred to in the New Testament as the peace of God. In Philippians 4, 7, and the peace of God, not with God, the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now there is a promise to hold on to. Philippians 4, 7. Or possibly this verse, let the peace of God rule in your hearts like an umpire, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So, if you're experiencing a lack of peace right now, the peace of God you're not experiencing because you're not allowing it to rule in your life. How would you not allow the peace of God to rule in your life? It's a three-letter word. Anybody? Anybody? Sin. Isn't Christianity simple? When you sin, you no longer have the peace of God. You still have peace with God if you've made your peace with God, but you've lost the peace of God. Okay? And how do you get it back? Repent. Confess. Agree with God that you sinned. And immediately you'll have that peace of God again. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, kindness, goodness. That's our experience as believers. It should be. What this verse means is that the believer is to literally allow the peace of God to act as an umpire of the heart in guiding and directing you. Yeah, it's subjective. But he will never lead you to do anything that's contrary to what's in this book. So don't say, but I love her. Yeah, but she ain't your wife. That's not allowing the peace of God to be an umpire in your heart. And it's not allowing the word of God to have full reign in your life. Well, on this second Sunday of Advent, and as we quiet our hearts, and as we look forward to the celebrating of the birth of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, may the peace of God guard your hearts and rule as an umpire. And may you exalt in the knowledge that if you have turned from your sin and trusted Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then you are reconciled with him. And you can enjoy peace with God and the peace of God. And there could be no greater gift than that gift, Jesus Christ. You could give no greater gift to your relatives, to your family members, to your friends, than sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. Remember, it's his work. You don't do the converting, but you do do the witnessing. You can share the truth of God's word. Last Sunday, was it last and two Sundays ago? Uh, we had our love feast. It was communion Sunday. We gave away a little track. You don't have to give them the track. Just look at what's in that track and talk to them about what's in it. Talk to them about how you experience the peace with God so that you now have the peace of God. Today, 
let us lift up this wonderful title of our Lord and Savior, for he is truly the Prince of Peace. And the only question remains, is he your Prince of Peace? Let's pray. Father, thank you for Shalom. The hope of Shalom is an amazing, amazing promise. And we are grateful that you have provided a way through Jesus Christ that we can have peace with God and no longer be at war with him, no longer gritting our teeth and saying we will not. But Father, instead we can say thank you, thank you, thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.